Hi, I'm Dan Permack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today is Wednesday, January 13th. Impeachment is being debated in Congress. Airbnb is out of Washington, D.C. during Inauguration Week. And we're focused on a firm in the future of fintech. Earlier today, a buy now, pay later lender called Affirm made its debut on the NASDAQ. By the time it began trading, it was worth nearly $30 billion. Four reasons why it matters. First, Affirm is led by Max Levchin, who is really one of the godfathers of digital payments, having co-founded PayPal. Two, it's basically out to destroy credit cards, or at least to serve as a viable alternative to them. The company provides loans for purchases from thousands of merchants, including online ones like Peloton, Warby Parker, and Casper. Three, the broader fintech market is on fire, just absolute fire right now, despite the country's broader economic problems. Just yesterday, for example, a fintech company called Plaid canceled its $5.3 billion takeover by Visa. The official reason was an antitrust lawsuit, but sources tell me the unofficial reason is that Plaid felt the price had gotten very stale and had gotten seller's remorse. Four, as we've discussed on this show in other contexts, payments can be where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to changing behavior. Think of Visa and MasterCard refusing to service Pornhub subscriptions, or Stripe recently deciding to no longer process payments for the Trump campaign. So we want to dig deeper into a firm and the role and future of fintech with a firm CEO, Max Levchin. So, Max, let's start with the obvious kind of financial IPO stuff. You guys raise the range of your IPO. You price above the raised range, 49 bucks a share. But just a few minutes before you and I start taping this, you begin trading at over $90 a share. In the vernacular, it means you left $10 billion plus on the table. How does it feel to leave $10 billion plus on the table? You know, I am pretty sure I'm focusing on the right things when I think about the capital we did raise, the one we, uh, we did, in fact, uh, plan to, um, the fact that we're able to bring the story to the broader investor community. And we have a great story, so we're quite excited to uh, tell the world who we are and um, just get the recognition that the, I think this team and the products that we build deserve. So from that point of view, it feels great. In terms of the share price, I really hope investors, my team, my directors uh, and my board grade the share price and, and my performance, the team's performance in the increments of years, maybe decades. We're trying to build something that stands the test of time here. First day pop is going to be noise very, very soon. So I'm, I am not uh, too bothered, to be completely honest. The market will value us where the market will. That's its job. Let me ask one other IPO question. The expectation was that a firm was going to go public sometime shortly before Christmas of last year. Obviously, we're now kind of mid-January. The understanding I got from speaking to some folks back then was that you guys felt a little bit slowed down by the SEC in terms of response time, particularly you did an acquisition in early December that obviously had to get incorporated into your paperwork. Is that an accurate understanding of why you didn't go public in December? There's a lot of different things that come into play. Everything you said had a bearing on the timing. There are filings, there are audits, there are auditors to, uh, to sign off and everything has to be buttoned up. If you know, and, and you do, um, who we are and, and how we roll, we don't cut corners. We want it to be not just rushed out, but ready and you know, make sure the market is prepared for us. That, that's another factor in the whole thing. We felt we were ready by January 4th and January 5th, I began the roadshow. So I think uh, we, did, uh, we did exactly what we had planned to do. And then here we are. Max, you've said that a firm's goal is to become kind of a viable alternative to credit cards. 
why did you feel the market needed a viable alternative to credit cards, particularly the online commerce world? So I think the financial product that is the credit card is flawed, if I'm allowed such blunt statements. I think it's like a power tool that comes with no manual and no safety features. You can really make some uh, hay with your personal financial life if you don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, when I was in my late teens, I was on campus, got my first credit card back before the Card Act. And before I knew it, I ran up a whole $200 worth of debt. And that destroyed my credit score because I didn't realize minimum payments were a thing. You know, fast forward many years later, and after PayPal went public almost 20 years ago, I couldn't buy a car. I had to pay cash for it. And so the punchline is, I think if you know what you're doing is you're financially savvy, maybe a corporation, revolving credit is a wonderful tool. You can do a lot with it. But for most normal folks, the idea of paying for things over time is powerful. The idea of putting it into revolving credit accounts and figuring out exactly what the amortization schedules will look like and what the late fees might cost you and what the things like deferred credit and um, retroactive credit clawback looks like is just bad news. And I think 20 years ago, banks that issue such cards could get away with it. And I think today, the generation that witnessed post-2008 wasteland laid to our economy want better. That was literally what uh, compelled me to uh, try to do this company. Max, there's a bucket of companies that have benefited to a certain extent from the pandemic, leaving aside the human tragedies of it. Uh, you know, you know, think of a Zoom, for example. Do you view a firm in that bucket too, in part because of a big rise in e-commerce? Obviously, Peloton, which is a big part of your business right now, has exploded with gyms being closed. Should we consider a firm to be one of these pandemic beneficiaries? You know, to be honest, knowing folks that have lost loved ones and, and, and such in this awful year, I'm not sure I can quite stomach the uh, pandemic and beneficiary in the same sentence. Systemically, I think the movement from offline to online got a multiple years worth of acceleration. I think if you looked at sort of a, you know, things are shifting online chart, it was this kind of a linear, pretty predictable growth curve at this point. And it's like we skipped three years and I don't think we're going back. And so in that sense, I think there are a lot of structural changes that will take place. And most of them are good because online is a more modern infrastructure. There are opportunities to do better opportunities for the likes of our product to get to more people's hands. And that's good. A firm for the record does work both online and offline, but uh, we were born initially in the e-commerce setting and uh, know that space really well and certainly grew alongside uh, e-commerce this year. A pandemic challenge question, which is, say this had been uh, early April and I had gone on, say, Peloton site and decided to buy a bike and I decided to use the Affirm option to pay for it. I know you guys use AI, et cetera, to kind of figure out to make sure I am effectively credit worthy, et cetera. Was that an additional challenge? Because I might be somebody who's got a great credit history. I've got a good employment record, all that stuff. But a lot of people unexpectedly, you know, mass numbers of people unexpectedly suddenly lost their jobs. Yeah, I think uh, my... Um stress meters uh, were all-time high throughout uh, the first uh, several months of the pandemic. We were very committed to standing by our customers. We have a very strong view on what is and isn't right. We weren't about to change our business and say, you know, in good times, we won't charge late fees, but uh, you know, let me think twice about it during a pandemic. And so we have our moral backbone and uh, we uh, look to our core values to decide what to do. That said, we were definitely building a lot of tools, a lot of uh, systems to prepare ourselves to just help consumers should they start um, 
you know, feeling the financial pain of the pandemic, and many have. And uh, in our US one, you can see that uh, we have passed the test with flying colors. If you were asking me this question right after the lockdowns began, uh, I may have been uh, more cautious, but uh, I think we have now proven that a firm's uh, systems are quite battle tested and kept functioning and keep functioning. You talk about the company's core values. Well, not one of your rivals, but another company in the payment space, Stripe, uh, made some news the other day by saying it was no longer going to process payments for President Trump's reelection campaign, or not for his reelection campaign, for his campaign at this point. Are there certain sorts of merchants that a firm, just categories of merchants that a firm won't work with? Um, yes, there are. There are definitely categories where we don't play. For example, um, guns is one area. It has nothing to do with my personal views or any one particular personal views on the Second Amendment and, uh, and things like that. It's a riskier category than we feel comfortable uh, competing in. From a creditworthiness standpoint, you mean? Uh, beyond that, there, there's a lot of other risks that we have to control. So I, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm passing judgment on creditworthiness of, uh, of gun buyers. In fact, I'm sure a huge percentage of them are excellent credits, and we would be so lucky to help them in any other transaction that, that, that we could. It's a complex regulatory environment, among other things. And so that, that's something that uh, we just want to stay out of. The overall sort of political and or regulatory and legislative engagement is something that really matters to us. I think that that's sort of the core of your question. I spent three years CFPB's advisory board before this particular administration took over. And um, that was a highly engaged and really I thought active and smart CFPB, and I hope to see more engagement opportunities from the federal and state government. Big part of sort of the luxury, if you will, that, that I have and that we have as a company, we took a very moral stand from the very beginning. We've never strayed from it. That, in part, is our uh, contribution to uh, civic engagement. When you say moral stand, moral stand on what? Um, for example, we don't charge late fees. It's a revenue opportunity for literally everyone in the space. And uh, we had decided that there is a short list of reasons why people can't pay on time. Some of them are lying to themselves. They really think they, they could have afforded this transaction, but they can't. And um, they won't be able to pay you anyway. Charging them late fee just adds insult to injury. And it was our mistake to, uh, to approve that transaction. Some people are lying to us. They have no intention of paying. Telling them, hey, late fees for you is sort of defeats the purpose that they have no intent. And then a huge percentage of people just need a reminder and profiting from the you know, momentary lapse of a financial reason is not something we wanted to do. We wanted to build our brand on the idea that when you forget, we'll remind you, not catch you when you least expect it and make some money. Max, final question for you. Uh, before joining Axios, I was at Fortune in one of the more iconic photos at Fortune magazine you are in, along with the other members of the quote unquote PayPal mafia, you're in the front holding a deck of cards. So I've wanted to ask this, and I didn't last time I had you on stage. Is this a photo that in your home is sitting like one of those giant blown up frames like above a couch, or is this a photo that you cringe every time you see it? Neither. I don't have it framed. And um, so for the record, is a wonderful group of people. Everyone in that photo is a friend, somebody I, I hold in, in high esteem and regard, and many of them reached out today. And uh, it's awesome to be a part of such a alumni network. That said, my home is uh, covered in photos of my children, and uh, I like it that way. Max Levchin, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. And congratulations on the IPO today. Thank you. Welcome back. 
What we're watching today is the U.S. House of Representatives, which is expected to vote to impeach President Trump for a second time. Two big questions. First, how many Republicans vote to impeach, particularly if there are any from that group that just one week ago objected to certification of some state electors? For those seeking higher office at some point, a rep who wants to become a senator or a governor, this could be the vote that puts wind in their future sails or the one that acts like a political noose. It's entirely unclear right now which way the politics will shake out. Two, what the Senate will do when it eventually gets the articles of impeachment. Remember, the Senate needs two-thirds to convict Trump, but just a simple majority to disqualify him from holding office in the future. Today, we're also watching the continuing pandemic surge as the U.S. yesterday recorded a record 4,327 deaths. For context, the weekly average is now up 26% from the weekly average just seven days ago, with more people dying so far in January from COVID-19 than died from influenza during the entire 2019-2020 flu season. And finally, just to illustrate how seriously the threats of upcoming political violence are being taken, Airbnb announced today that it's canceling all existing reservations and blocking new ones in the Washington, D.C. area during Inauguration Week. It says the move came at the request of local, state, and federal officials, with the company covering refunds for both guests and hosts. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national rubber ducky day back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.